Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are J.W. Verrett, Associate Professor of Law at George Mason University, and returning guest Gregory Schill, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Iowa. This episode is part of an ongoing series about the intersection of the 2020 crisis and business scholarship. Today's topic is focused on congressional insider trading. Both our guests have written on this topic, and so I'm excited to hear their views and conversation. In 2013, J.W. authored a chapter in the Research Handbook on Insider Trading titled Applying Insider Trading Law to Congressmen, Government Officials, and the Political Intelligence Industry. More recently, Greg has written an essay titled Congressional Securities Trading. I'll include a link to both these papers in the show notes for today's episode. J.W., Greg, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Adam. J.W., I wonder if you could help set the stage a little bit for us with this statute that has been on the books for close to 10 years now called the Stock Act. What drove it to be adopted in 2012? What were some of the problems it was designed to address? And how has it been used over the last eight years that it's been on the books? And have there been any surprises since when you first wrote about this topic? This topic first became a national note. Around 2011, when a scholar at the Hoover Institute out there at Stanford with you, Andrew, did a book on political insider trading by members of Congress and how some members of Congress tended to get outsized returns and did some specifics uh, about particular trading after particular, in one case, briefings to a member of Congress from the Federal Reserve chairman where he would trade after every one of those briefings. So I I was actually out visiting at Stanford when this happened and had an opportunity to come testify on the Stock Act. And, and frankly, I didn't want any part of it. And I didn't want to fly across the country just for this. So I wrote a law review article about it instead and about some of the issues involved there. It's been used once, to my knowledge, around the time I went to work on the Hill and had to actually comply with, with disclosures related to the Stock Act. It's used once in a very rarefied set of facts that made it a pretty, pretty much a slam dunk case in which a Ways and Means staffer was privy to information about changes in Medicaid reimbursement rates. So a very, very clear case of non-public information, clearly material, clearly impacting stock prices that he leaked to a hedge fund that traded on it that he had expected a personal benefit from. Other than that, to my knowledge, it's never been used by the SEC. So this is the first instance in which we're seeing potentially the SEC examining it. I don't know, but definitely the DOJ looking into it with respect to Leffler and the Richard Burr trades. So, Greg, JW mentions kind of current events that that bring us to today. You've recently written about this topic generally and focused particularly on some recent events. I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about your motivation for writing your essay, how it relates to the current coronavirus crisis, and what are some of the background questions that you wanted to explore in the paper? Yes. So, you know, the immediate occasion for my writing it was that Senators Burr and Leffler had engaged in some trades informed by material non-public information that they had received in a confidential briefing from the White House. The facts are still unclear, and because they're still unfolding, I didn't want to only write about that issue. I also wanted to talk about the topic in a more evergreen way, because as uh, JW has shown, you know, they have some staying power 
And so I think it's a more serious topic than merely the current trades that have generated a scandal might suggest. So that was kind of the motivation. I also was looking at the literature and seeing that it has a very strong focus on litigation and enforcement, meaning how do we define or import the insider trading criminal and SEC enforcement, and I suppose to a degree, private securities fraud, civil actions, how do we import that system over to Congress? And that's not my primary interest. I guess as a former, partly just as a securities regulation scholar, but also as a former congressional staffer and corporate lawyer who worked on securities matters, I looked at this as a regulatory problem. And so I kind of thought, what would it look like if we applied some of the same rules that we apply to corporate insiders to the congressional context? Because in many ways, their situations are analogous. Both members of Congress and CEOs and directors and other insiders uh, are perpetually in possession of material non-public information, but they need for economic reasons to engage in trading. And so you know, we have a, a pretty sophisticated system for managing that in the public company world, um, and there isn't really a parallel in the congressional context. So that was kind of the motivation for, for the essay. Integrity of the capital markets and integrity of the political sphere are, are both important, and they might have a lot of similarities, as you kind of observe, Greg. My question maybe to both of you is whether securities regulation itself is a good framework for regulating congressional trading of this sort or the potential for members of Congress or their staff to profit from material non-public information on the government's part. And maybe to put it another way, is it the case that we can just graft the insider trading doctrines and rules that apply to private actors onto members of Congress and their staffs? Or are there maybe gaps that we need to recognize in the distinction between capital markets actors and political actors? Well, I, you know, the, the two, you, you raised a good point, which is to what extent is this a fair analog? And I think it is in, in important respects, but can't be, a, can't be imported verbatim. And so, you know, the two provisions that I emphasize, one of them is Rule 10b-5-1, which is a provision that, in fact, a subsection of that rule, that's what I focus on, called a 10b-5-1 plan. And these are now standard at public companies. Uh, practically every CEO and director has one. It's a trading plan whereby they say that, for example, on the 15th of the month, every month, perpetuity, they will buy let's say 100 shares of the company's stock. And you know that plan can be modified or canceled, but it should be done so with care because that can damage its utility as an affirmative defense. That's the status that it has under the securities laws that is an affirmative defense to insider trading. So I, I think that that's useful. To, imp- to bring it into the congressional context, I think they should be made public. 10b-5-1 plans are not public, and in fact, can be difficult even for shareholders to obtain. So I think that's one distinction. In addition, they have this affirmative defense status. I think in Congress, rather than giving them any particular legal status, they should simply be required as a matter of chamber rule to announce ex ante what the members' trades are going to be so that the public knows that up front. So there's some, some modifications there. And then the second piece is uh, Section 16B, Short Swing Profits Prohibition from the Exchange Act. And you know that's just an ex post kind of sweep 
to, in the public company context, the rationale is that any short-term profits by somebody with MNPI who's a statutory insider is accomplished with MNPI, meaning it's an unlawful trade, and so that those profits can be disgorged. That's something that I also propose be adopted as a matter of chamber rule and automated, which is also a difference from the public company world where a private litigant would have to bring, typically it's done by a private litigant, would bring a uh, suit to disgorge the profits. So there's some an analogous framework, but with some changes that I think would make it a lot easier for the Congress administratively to carry out. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the analogy works very well at all, particularly in the way the Stock Act was drafted. And those are a couple of issues I pointed out with problems in the Stock Act in the article that, that you cited. And thanks for citing that, Andrew. I um, First of all, I, I don't think the the materiality and the public, non-public nature distinction is often going to be helpful. At times, I think it can be helpful in the executive branch. Sometimes there are pieces of clearly valuable information arising out of the executive branch that present imminent trading opportunities in the same way a merger or acquisition quarterly earnings release and whether or not it meets prior predictions gives concrete and clearly tradable opportunities that are clearly non-public. There are analogous things in terms of FDA drug approval or the prices set for something or policies that lead to some, you know, some clear effect on an outside company. I think in Congress, just from the perspective of working there, it is so often the case that nobody really knows anything outside of leadership and even leadership often is unaware. So just knowledge that a bill is introduced or a committee had a hearing or a committee marked up a bill or committee's going to get a briefing. Oftentimes those briefings are have little to no information. I saw this in the, in the lead up to the Stock Act. The headline was member of Congress gets briefing from Fed chairman and then trades right after. Well, that, that was true. That did happen by a guy named Spencer Backus. He mostly lost money on those trades. And I'd say I sat through maybe three or four dozen briefings from Fed chairman to members of Congress. And they never say anything that's not non-public. That is so over-scripted that it was kind of foolish for him to do those trades because he didn't have any material non-public information. It's just going to be so rare in Congress. The one exception with Ways and Means that I offered. And I think it seems like, at least with respect to Leffler in the current crisis, it seems like the coincidence of getting a briefing that involved the mention of the travel ban just before her trades in a travel company Boy, that's that suggests uh, opening a file and an investigation and certain subpoenas to me, obviously. So that's an exception, but I think that's generally not the case. And the other major problem with the Stock Act is the grafting of fiduciary duty. Remember, classical insider trading theory is grounded in state law fiduciary duties to shareholders, and this duty is grafted in some kind of a weird way to create a fiduciary duty between members of Congress and citizens of the United States and the government of the United States and the rest of the Congress. First, So first of all, you have three different fiduciaries with competing ideas. Just one clear, odd consequence of the way the Stock Act is drafted is that I'm pretty sure that if you engage in insider trading as a member of Congress on Inside Info, but you do it with a foreign national, you have not violated the Stock Act on a clear reading of the Stock Act because the weird way it was drafted. So if Leffler was you know, trading with a foreign national, if you can trace those trades, I think she would actually get off scot-free uh, under the weird way the Stock Act was drafted. And I don't know how you define a fiduciary relationship like that, because there's obviously no case law defining those fiduciary duties. So it's just such an odd fit. 
I think the only way you can police this clearly potential for uh, socially harmful behavior is through the internal ethics rules of the Congress, which can do things like disclosure, which could probably do some version of Greg's idea of a 10B51 plan, although those plans are limited in their utility, of course, because they always have ranges and some flexibility, but you could probably do some version of that in internal ethics rules or in prohibitions on holding individual stocks or trading in them after coming into Congress, though I'd be careful not to discourage owners of businesses from running for Congress in the first place, but focusing on trades after coming in. But I just don't think that the regular securities law apparatus is just a good fit at all. One wrinkle I think in this, or one complication in this current controversy with some of the senators is that to the extent that the facts are there that they did trade based on this briefing, the briefing was really related to macro information. It wasn't based on knowledge that Medicare reimbursement rates were going to be changed or knowledge that the antitrust division was going to seek to enjoin a merger or anything like that. Does the macro level information change the doctrinal analysis we should be thinking about in terms of insider trading as it's typically been understood? Or is it just something that is so unclear in effect that traditional notions of insider trading and and the rules around that just don't really hold very well? Yeah, I'll start. I think uh, this this is the contrast between the Senator Leffler fact pattern and the Senator Burr fact pattern. It could be both of them had non-public information and they could be clearly guilty under the statute. That's a possibility. We just don't know the facts. But from what's public so far, like I said, I found it odd that Leffler got the information about the travel ban just for divesting in a travel company a day later. By contrast, it seems like what we know of Burr's briefings were sort of generalized briefings about the pandemic that involved emphasis, more emphasis than the administration was giving publicly, but emphasis on issues that were already sort of out there in the public sphere, certainly you know on bio Twitter since January. Joe Biden did an op-ed at January 31st, a few weeks before this, about how he was worried about the crisis. That, I think, would make a Burr prosecution difficult under 10b-5. I think, Andrew, that this tend to agree that the prosecution actually of either senator would be difficult based on currently known facts. Leffler, of course, has an additional defense, which is that her portfolio is managed by what she claims is a blind trust, although we don't know enough about it to know whether it satisfies the necessary criteria for that defense. But, you know, Burr is in a slightly different factual position because he wrote an op-ed, uh, co-authored an op-ed for the Fox News website about a week before he sold out of hotel chains and other companies that were uh, sensitive to the pandemic. In, in the op-ed, basically said, President Trump has this in hand. The U.S. is safe from a, from a pandemic. Now, somebody's allowed to change their mind, but I think that uh, certainly a, a clever lawyer could try to make that case. But I share JW's skepticism about the strength of that case for the basic fact that, given the basic fact that there was abundant public information about the possibility of the pandemic becoming a major problem in the U.S. uh, and in the economy. And in fact, what Senator Burr did is immediately point to public reports that had been made prior to his trade that suggested that. And he he said that's what informed his trade. So this is a problem that uh, Andrew Verstein has written about. He's at Wake Forest. Uh, He calls mixed motives insider trading. And 
there is a, a circuit split on whether a trade needs to be on the basis of MNPI or whether it's enough that it be you know, in, while the trader is in the possession of MNPI to satisfy the Center requirement of 10b5. So I think here, you know, Senator Burr isn't even claiming mixed motives. He's saying it's purely based on public information, and that likely would complicate a prosecution or even a civil action. And that, to me, points up the need for a regulatory solution. And I'll put regulatory in quotation marks here. I don't expect any kind of SEC action, let alone statutory action. But each chamber does have the power to do this as a matter of self-regulation. One more thing real quick, Andrew. If you look at the impact on voter approval of uh, both of these senators, Burr's not running for re-election. Leffler was appointed and needs to run very soon. I think the voter reaction was swift and strong. And Leffler's odds, if Burr was going to run, I don't think he'd win re-election. And I think Leffler is going to get killed in the primary. If voters do take both of these people down in response to these stories, that points to a system that's working. Is there really a problem that needs to be solved? Disclosure plus voter punishment is sort of the way you police Congress. You know? I, I would take exception to that. I think you know it's nice when the political stars align in that way. But if we really believed that the ballot box was the only mechanism for enforcing the law, you know, we wouldn't. We would make it legal to bribe members of Congress. We would exempt them from all sorts of other laws. We don't do that. There are limited exceptions that they enjoy, such as the speech or debate clause. But you know, by and large, they're subject to the same rules as everybody else. And I don't see why insider trading should be different. Uh, I think JW and I may have a philosophical disagreement about the. Stock Act's clear statement that members of Congress are subject to fiduciary obligations. But but this larger issue of of whether it is appropriate to use, you know, law to control the actions of political officials who are also accountable at the ballot box, you know, it seems fortuitous that the timing might enable them to be held accountable in some way. But I would add that that's, in addition to being fortuitous, it's really only possible because each chamber currently does have a, uh, it's a rudimentary system, but they do have a system for disclosing trades. They have, I say it's rudimentary because it's only ex post. There's no 10B51 style plan, but also on the ex post side, they have 45 days to file what in the public company context would be a form four, where they would have two business days after the trade to disclose the trade. So they, that's why this only came out recently. These trades were executed in Leffler's case, January 24th, and then in Burr's about two months ago in mid-February. And so, you know, there was a big delay. And uh, so I, I think tightening up that system, making it run better would, you know, would probably facilitate more efficient political consequences, as well as open up the, the possibility of a enforcement response where one would be warranted based on the facts. So as you've both noted, there are reports that there are pending SEC, DOJ, investigations into some of the trades of some of the the members of the Senate, and you've both expressed some skepticism about the merits of those cases and whether they can really be proven. But I wonder, in terms of enforcement policy, how should the SEC and DOJ go about investigating and policing congressional insider trading? And I, I might distinguish that from kind of the traditional capital markets focused insider trading that might involve 
a member of Congress who happens to be a fiduciary or happens to be a tippy. So kind of setting that case apart, which I believe we've had a recent example of that, but just kind of focusing on sort of the Stock Act domain, how should the SEC and DOJ approach those cases? Sure. Well, I I think that the SEC has only brought one case here against a a Ways and Means Committee staffer, to my knowledge. The DOJ, however, is not shy about going after congressmen. And I think it's fair to say the DOJ doesn't play favorites on party. And I think it's also fair to say that power is so consolidated in the Congress that even if you thought the executive branch would be shy about going after Congress because of the power they have, the vast majority of members of Congress are just largely powerless people. I mean, your average backbench congressman might be famous in his district, but he is no one in this town. So, you know, when when the Duncan Hunter prosecution, various prosecutions, members of Congress, I would say the DOJ is not shy and, in fact, would love to take down members of Congress. The Menendez prosecution, I don't think DOJ is shy at all about going after members of Congress when they can make a case. The SEC might be in a little bit of a different position, but I, I don't think they're in that different a position because I think that your enforcement lawyer, if they can make a case, they'd love to get a, a high-profile target like that. And I think if they've got the case they can make, I don't, I don't think they fear some appropriations consequence because that's you know, sort of housed in the appropriate committee. And the, the most powerful members of Congress, the leadership, usually are to get to leadership because they're very good about being careful to kind of tick all the boxes. So I'm not really worried about under-enforcement as a problem here, particularly on the DOJ side, they've got more of a record, but I don't think with the SEC either. I th- I'm a little less sanguine about that, but I think that the doctrinal challenges are probably the more significant ones, you know, namely that mixed motives problem and the difficulty of of determining the relevant facts here. So what exactly was disclosed, for example, at the briefing and what else was public and had, you know, in what sense was it public if it was reported on some foreign website, you know, does that count? These factual rabbit holes that bedevil many insider trading cases in the conventional context of corporate insider trading, I think this would be, you know, that those problems would attach here as well. What key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this conversation and from the work that you've both done in this area? You know, I think it's important to ask here, what are we concerned about? And unjust self-enrichment, which is the typical uh, insider trading case, that is definitely one concern here. And in, in the case of the pandemic trades, that's probably the most prominent concern. But there's also the risk of policy distortion. And I think that the best way to manage that towards preventing that goal, which is a relatively difficult thing to prevent, is to think about a management system that does what it can ex ante so that it doesn't get bogged down in doctrinal nuances and pitfalls of factual disagreements and so forth. And also because resolving these things ex post in litigation that takes years is is really a suboptimal outcome. And I think our securities regulation regime really reflects that judgment and does it well. And we can, you know, we can learn from the public company context and apply these methods that have evolved through a mix of private ordering and uh, regulation. And, you know, the, the two that I talk about are Rule 10b-5-1 plan and the Section 16b short swing profits rule. In the essay, I also talk a little bit about Regulation FD, Reg FD, which covers selective disclosure 
mandates fair disclosure, hence the, the acronym. That I think is a little bit trickier, but that deals with a third risk, which is the risk of unjust enrichment of third parties, something that uh, GW talks about as well in his chapter. And th- that I see as a separate issue. And so you know, I don't really develop it in the essay, but I think in all three cases, you have a pretty good model in the public company world. And it's a little bit mysterious to me that so much of the energy has been focused on the litigation enforcement angle as opposed to the prevention side, which primarily comes through regulation. I would offer that main takeaways. First, the Stock Act is not perfect. It was very sloppily drafted. That sort of an odd transplant of 34 Act and underlying state fiduciary duty principles that don't carry over well to this context and just are not well-defined in this context in the way the state corporate fiduciaries are over thousands of pages of court cases defining that concept. So it doesn't carry over well. But at a minimum, it did achieve two things. First, to the extent that there were abnormal returns for members of Congress in the stock market, those have largely dissipated just via empirical inquiry. And secondly, they provide the tools necessary to go after, at least in the current cases, Burr and Leffler, to the extent that they're trading on the basis of non-public information. To the extent they're not trading on the basis of non-public information, I don't see a legal issue here to be solved. I do see a moral issue in, with respect to the relationship to the voters. I would never vote for them after what they did. I think what they did was reprehensible, and they should have been focused on messaging to the public what they knew, just from a moral perspective, to get the word out about the need to prepare and to consider staying at home. But I don't see a, a legal issue to be solved between the wide reaches of the, of the Stock Act for actual insider trading and between voter reaction to disclosure about the trades. I think there could be some work to be done, just generally speaking, not reactive to this particular situation about members of Congress with respect to internal ethics rules, because I think trading individual stocks just for the purposes of speculation is just a distraction they don't need. And that, frankly, they probably won't make abnormal returns anyway, as most of us won't relative to index funds, low load index funds. So I think there's work to be done there on a, in a simple level as a prophylactic, which could be helpful. But other than that, uh, main takeaways are the Stock Act is flawed. Its doctrinal inconsistencies are interesting to watch in the event cases are brought. It can't handle this problem if there was non-public information. But generally speaking, I think voter reaction and basic prophylactic like a ban on trading is a better way to go. But this has been a fun conversation, Andrew, and I appreciate you having us. Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew. It's been great. Of course, JW, Greg, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.